Hi, this is John from Prodigal Church. We want to thank you for listening to this week's teaching. The best way to watch and listen is through our Prodigal mobile app, available at your app store. We hope you are moved to love God and others in a greater way. Now, let's dive right into this week's teaching. I truly believe that children are the second best part of Christmas. Uh, we have an unbelievable kids ministry here at Prodigal Church, led by an amazing leader in Brittany Howard. And we are just so excited as a leadership team, as a staff, um, for you and your kids and for your homes to have a wonderful, blessed Christmas this year. And we're excited for the joy that comes um, in this season as well. In Christmas, it really is a magical time, right? Uh, it's amazing that everything changes because of the Christmas season, uh, right? We're, we're happier. There's more joy. There's just something in the air. Have, like, have you ever thought of December without Christmas? Like there's nothing innately exciting about December. It's cold. It's the end of the year. Um, it's dark, maybe a little bit gloomy. It's also home to the uh, darkest day of the year with the least amount of sunlight. And that day is actually tomorrow, December 21st. Yay, darkest day. That is December. But when you add Christmas to it, it changes everything. Uh, December should be lame. Without Christmas, December would be, I don't know, February, okay? Yet December becomes one of our favorite months every year because of Christmas. Uh, stores seem brighter. People might be in a little bit of a better mood. Uh, it's like there's something in the air, that there's magic about Christmas. But therein lies the problem, because for many of us, especially as grown-ups, Christmas can sometimes feel like it's just magic. And you know what magic is, right? It, it's an illusion. It's the appearance of something, but it's not quite really happening. It's sleight of hand. It's diversion. It's, hey, look over there, and uh, something's going to happen over here. And the number one rule in magic is that a magician never reveals his tricks or, or secrets. I don't know which one you said. Um, but don't show people how the trick actually works. Um, the reason for this is because when you do, all the magic goes away. All the wonder goes away. All the fun goes out the door. In the 1990s, there was this show on Channel 26, KMPH, and it was called The Masked Magician. And I don't know if you guys saw this back in the day, but the dude wore a mask and he broke the rules of the magic code, right? He revealed how magicians do their tricks. And I loved watching this show. But once I did, once I saw uh, how the trick was done, it completely took the wonder out of it all. In that moment, it was gone. And sometimes Christmas can feel like magic. We go through this season, we practice being kinder, we look for ways to be more generous, and uh, we're all in all a little bit better. It's a season of joy. And we go through these months, we try to make things perfect for our kids, and we try to buy the right gifts to give to others, and then when we get back to January, it's life as usual. And then we look at our Amazon bill, and we realize how much money we spent during the holiday season, and the stresses, and life just continues to compound on top of us. We go back to our grumpy selves. And here is what I want you to hear today. If you don't hear anything else, I want you to hear this. So if you are, even now, 
um, sorting through your phone and looking at your Amazon orders, seeing if something's going to make it before Christmas. Put it down. Don't miss this. The magic of Christmas is that it really happened. It's, it's not magic at all. It's not a fairy tale. The magic of Christmas isn't an illusion. What makes Christmas magical is that it's something that really happened, concrete, in history, in our world. And that's what we celebrate, what actually happened. There really was a young Jewish girl named Mary in love and ready for marriage. There really was a first century a Jewish carpenter named Joseph who is engaged and he's excited about starting his life with his potential bride, Mary. And God disrupts Joseph's plans, just as he had done Mary's. And he does ours. God's presence, and we said this last week, is by nature disruptive. Christmas isn't magic at all. It's not a trick. It was real 2,000 years ago, and it's still real today. And the God who disrupts Mary and Joseph to move them forward in love to the world, he disrupts our lives as well. And he longs to fan into flame his love for us and his love for the world. So let's read a part of this real story from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 18. It says this, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child and through the Holy Spirit. So here's Mary. She's got her future brightly planned, right? It's clear. She, she's going to get married. They're eventually going to have kids. They'll have a white picket fence um, in Bethlehem and two and a half camels, uh, maybe even a minivan of cam caravan. A camel caravan is what they're probably going to have. And she's got it all mapped out. And then God completely throws a wrench to this. He disrupts her life. Suddenly she discovers that she's pregnant. Now she's going to have to have this really awkward conversation with her fiance. And so I don't know how it went 2,000 years ago, but Mary probably took Joseph to the Starbucks on the, every corner of Bethlehem. And uh, she went there and she said, hey, Joseph, here's, I got good news, I got bad news. What do you want to hear first? And, and we all know what Joseph asked for, right? The bad news. Give me the bad news first so we can end with the good stuff. And so she says, the bad news is I'm pregnant. And Joseph said, okay, well, what's, what's the good news? The good news is it's God's son. Yay. What? For Joseph, this is bad news and worse news. Bad news, my, my fiance is pregnant. She cheated on me. And worse news, she cray cray because she thinks the baby's God's. Okay? This is bad news and worse news for Joe. Now, I don't know how the conversation actually went. We don't get those details, but we do know the result of the conversation. Matthew lets us know that the end result of this very awkward difficult conversation that happened at the Starbucks in Bethlehem. Uh, this is what he tells us. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her. Now, there is so much in that one line. There is so much in the character and righteousness and integrity of Joseph just in that one sentence. 
You see, in Joseph's day, Jewish marriages were usually arranged by parents, and sometimes with the help of a, a matchmaker, uh, when the bride and groom were still young children. And at that point, the match was more of an understanding uh, than a non-binding agreement. But as the girl uh, grew older and entered puberty, the parents' agreement turned into a formal engagement, and the marriage ceremony usually followed between one and two years after that. And to cement the formal engagement, the father of the groom paid a certain sum to the father of the bride. So Joseph's father would have paid the, the bride price, okay? In Hebrew, it's the mohar. And this is not a small sum. According to one commentator that I've read, the mohar was comparable to the price of a one-bedroom house. Okay, this is not a small deal. And uh, there was a certain logic behind this custom because in, in a society like this one, the father of the bride was losing a daughter who was a working hand in the family. So when she married, she'd become a part of another family. And so the bride price was compensation for the father's loss, and it was a hefty price. Now, a large portion of the mohar was set aside for the bride, and it worked something like, like a savings account or an insurance policy. The money would go to the bride in the event that the husband um, prematurely died or divorced her, not unlike today's child support or alimony. In biblical times, if a woman's husband died, she could be left destitute, and hence the mohar became a very important source of income for the bride and the children. In addition to the bride price, the groom himself would also give the bride a sum of money called the matan. This too was hers to keep if the young man died or divorced her. And you think of the matan kind of like a, like a wedding ring for today, a gift that amounts to several months' wages. If the husband leaves, the ring remains with the property of the bride to keep her to sell. That's how the matan worked 2,000 years ago in the days of Mary and Joseph. Now, in addition to the mohar and the matan, the groom's family would often buy expensive gifts on top. And it was all part of the engagement. It was all part of the great party and the celebration that happens. Uh, now, once the ceremony happens... Uh, the contract was and is still called the Ketubah. And the Ketubah was an important document because it ensured that the husband would provide for the wife. It stipulated that even if he divorced her or if he died, she was to keep the mohar and the matan. Plus the gift that had been given to her family in engagement, she was to keep all of it. And upon signing the Ketubah, the bride and groom legally became husband and wife. They couldn't sleep together until the actual ceremony, but if either of them slept with someone else during this period, they would be considered adulterers. And that takes us back to our passage in Matthew chapter 1. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, I have met a lot of people who struggle with the concept of the virgin birth. For them, it seems too difficult to believe. And when I talk with them about their struggle to believe it, I always remind them that they are in good company. You see, Joseph also didn't believe the virgin birth. The one who was to raise Jesus, who was seen as a father to the Most High God, also struggled to believe the virgin birth. And he was hearing it from Mary himself. And despite his natural doubts, Matthew says that he was a righteous man. And the law states that he is to divorce her because she is pregnant, and the punishment for her crime is death. She's also to return the mohar, 
the matan, and all the gifts that she was given. She returns it all. But that's not what Joseph wanted. You see, he, didn't, he, he thought she cheated, and instead of taking everything from her, including her life, he, he didn't do it. Instead, even though his heart is shattered, even though he was betrayed by his love, he wept all the way home, even though she slept with someone else, even though he felt the weight of her supposed betrayal, he chose mercy. He chose to show compassion to Mary. He decided to divorce her quietly. Joseph knew that after he ended the engagement, everyone would soon discover that Mary was pregnant. And they would naturally assume that Joseph was the father and that he had slept with her while uh, they were in their engagement. And then he broke off the engagement. Uh, he wasn't pleased with her. And now the shame would be his, not Mary's. The divorce meant that he would say that he has changed his mind about marriage. And as it became evident that Mary was pregnant, people would assume that Joseph was the father and that he had a change of heart after being intimate with her. And so he, not Mary, would be seen as the dishonorable one. He would be the one to take all the blame. He would accept the stigma and shame for himself rather than forever disgrace Mary, his adulterous wife in his mind. Mary and her family would keep the mohar, the matan, as child support and alimony. Her dignity would remain intact and no one would be put to death. Joseph was willing to do all of this because he was a righteous man. It was not Joseph's obedience to the law, nor his pursuit of justice, that made him righteous. Instead, it was Joseph's compassion and mercy that he showed Mary that declared him righteous. All of this is implied by those few words in Matthew's Gospel. Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. Because he didn't want to humiliate her, he decided to call off their engagement quietly. You see, righteousness here is sacrificing for others. Righteousness here isn't about outward purity. It's not about church attendance. It's not about your prayer life. Here in the opening chapter of Matthew's Gospel, righteousness is taking the high road. Righteousness is protecting the vulnerable. Righteousness is sacrificing for someone else who doesn't deserve it and you taking their pain upon yourself. That is righteousness. You want to be righteous? Take the high road in the argument with your spouse. You know, the one that you probably had just this morning or the one that you had last night. Take the high road. You want to be righteous? Help someone who is vulnerable. You want to be righteous? Sacrifice at the expense of self for the benefit of the other. That's righteous. This Christmas season, one of the fun things my family does is Elf on a Shelf. And so at our house, every morning, um, Peter the elf flies from the North Pole and positions himself, hides himself somewhere in our home. And uh, he's got a little note and a small little gift for the kids. And so when the kids wake up, they look for Peter the elf. And um, our kids love this season. We regret that we can't have a picture with Santa um, this year uh, due to uh, this global pandemic. But I, I did read some letters that kids wrote to Santa Claus, and I'd like to share those with you right now. The first one, Dear Santa, I would like some Taylor Swift tickets. I would also like clothes from Nordstrom and a boyfriend. XOXO Sarah. Sounds like Sarah might be a little bit too old to be writing Santa. The next one, Dear Santa, if you want to grab a beer, feel free to get the lot. 
or just one. Uh, the fridge is near the door from Flynn. And then I love that Santa commented back, um, just one was good, thank you. Good job, Santa, good job. Next one, uh, here's a, a revised Christmas list. Number one, black tops. Uh, number two, PS4. Number three, hoverboard. Number four, golden watch. Number five, $29. Very specific. I mean, he's going to make Santa break a 10 or a 5 to give him a 5 and 4 ones. I mean, you're making a whole lot more work. $29. And the last one. Dear Santa, I want Simba's dad to wake up. You and me both, kid. I remember the pain that was in my soul after that stampede of wildebeests. I want Simba's dad to wake up too, Mufasa. Woo. Now, uh, in my front yard, we have an inflatable Santa. And a couple of years ago, a couple Christmas seasons ago, uh, Sarah and the kids were playing in the front yard and Dex kept hitting Santa like a boxing bag. And so Sarah keeps telling him, stop hitting Santa or he's gonna break. And not long after that, Santa begins to deflate. Like the Wicked Witch of the West in The Wizard of Oz, Santa begins to deflate. And uh, he's like, Mom, Santa's melting. And she said, you shouldn't have been hitting him. And so then they have this little heart to heart. Now I get home and Sarah tells me about it. And then we take the kids to dinner and we do like a quick return. And um, as we come back, uh, Santa is reinflated. okay? Resurrection, it's beautiful. And Dex says, Santa, what happened? He's back. And my wife says, wow, son, it must be Christmas magic. And he smiles ear to ear. And he's so excited. Wow, it's Christmas. He's telling his baby sister, it's Christmas magic. Santa's back. And he kind of wipes a tear from his face. And it, was, it very well could have been Christmas magic. It also could have been the timer on the plug for the Santa Claus as well. Um, was the resurrection of Santa magic? Maybe. Was the first Christmas magic? No. No, it was better than that. It was real. There was no illusion. There was no trick. And the same God who did the miraculous 2,000 years ago through Joseph and Mary does the miraculous now. One more letter. To Santa from a child. And this one, yeah, I think it hits home for all of us. The, this boy writes his letter to Santa, and at the end he writes, P.S. I'm sorry if I've been bad. It's really hard because of COVID-19 and online school, school in general. I'm trying to be good. Hope you understand. Hey, kid, Santa does understand, and so do we. Is not all of us? We're just trying this season, but it's just so hard. We're trying to be better, but life is just so difficult right now. It, this whole season is hard and will continue to be hard. But the truth of Christmas is that God doesn't abandon his people. He shows up. And our prayer is that the same God who showed up at the first Christmas, would show up at this Christmas in a new and beautiful and wonderful and magical way. Merry Christmas, Prodigal Church.